as we come now before the very Word of God. And please turn in your Bibles to the book of Hosea and chapter 14. We will almost make it to the end. Uh, we're, we're, the, the end of the book is in sight. Uh, we'll be here in just a moment in Hosea chapter 14. But before we read, uh, would you please pray with me? Uh, Lord, uh, we have just sung that your word our hope secures. Mm, that's, that's true, that we find hope here in your words. Lord, your words are like honeycomb, sweet to our soul and health to your body. Lord, by your spirit, would you open our ears to hear these things, our hearts to believe them, seal these truths upon us according to your will. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Hosea in chapter 14. I want to begin uh, this morning in verse 4, and we will read almost up into the end. So Hosea chapter 14, beginning in verse 4. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. This is the word of God. Now, we are almost here to the very end of the word of the Lord through the prophet, Isaiah, uh, through the prophet Hosea. So we are taking this final chapter, chapter 14, here in three parts according to its major th theme. So last week, if you were here, you heard me mention them, the themes of return, uh, restore, and reflect. So last week, we looked at the first of those three themes, which are the first three verses there. We looked at the theme of return. And there we heard Hosea speaking to the people the major call of the book, which is, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. That was last week. Today, we're looking at the second theme. And the speaker in this section of verses, the I in these verses, is not Hosea. Although technically, of course, he's the messenger of these things. When we hear the word I, the speaker here is the Lord. It's as if Hosea, sort of as the, the prophet, the middleman, the mouthpiece here is, is kind of taken out, is sort of removed, and the people hear directly from God. So these verses are God's word to them, God's word to us. And the theme that we hear here is a theme of restoration. 
uh, I called it restore last week, but as I've given more thought to it this week, I think a better word to describe what's happening here, even better than restore, is revive. That's what these verses are about, revive. That is, to come to life again. In these verses, you'll notice there's, there's lots of, of plant images, tree images, with all their, their roots and shoots and fruits and all those things that rhyme with oots. Uh, the Lord is really transforming Israel, uh, taking her out of the dry desert she's been and making her a green, fruitful garden. So the big question, then, we want to ask about these verses, the question we'll eventually address, is the question of why? Why does this revival occur? Because most of what we've seen throughout the whole book in the past several months as we've gone through is, is just Israel's sin on display. It almost feels punishing to hear it over and over again, her, her rebelliousness, her faithlessness, her idolatrousness. And, and, and there's not even a sense that she's ashamed or, or, or knows to be ashamed about these things or even to want to hide the sins. It's just kind of, kind of flaunted. And as a result, Israel is, is headed for destruction. There is an exile that is still to come ahead of the days of Hosea here. And yet, even in light of all of this mess, the picture at the end here of Israel is of real beauty, of life, abundant life, even. It's not just a mere existence. You know, Israel, you'll survive. Israel, you'll, you'll make it through. This list is, is a list of all the best stuff of their culture. You know, we see here lily blossoms, similar to the flowers that we often get so beautifully up here. We've got cedar trees of Lebanon that they were famous for, mentions of olives and grain and wine. So, so if this were written to our culture today, we might hear something like, oh, Israel, you will be as tender as a filet mignon. Or, or Israel, your, your fragrance will be like I suppose I should have thought about it. Freshly ground coffee. I, I, I don't know what it is. Whether you like steak or coffee or olives or whatever you think about those things, the, the point's not whether you like those things or not. It's that this is the epitome of flourishing and prosperity. These are good blessings that are good to desire even. Now, having said that, I need to make a distinction here that's an important one. The promises of prosperity here are not the same as what's often called the prosperity gospel. Prosperity promise is not the same as prosperity gospel. If, you don't, if you're not familiar with that, maybe you're familiar with the term the health wealth gospel. Um, sometimes people ascribe to those names, sometimes not. Even if you're not familiar with that term or those phrases, I am sure you've encountered it somewhere. You know, health, wealth, gospel, or prosperity gospel is what many faith teachers on TV ascribe to. You hear on radio, these are health, wealth teachers. Uh, most of the spiritual advisors, quote-unquote spiritual advisors, to our major governor, governor leaders in the past decade or so, have been health, wealth teachers. 
it's, it's, a, it's really a disease uh, that's infecting not just us here in America, but the globe. That wherever, wherever the gospel of Christ goes, this health-wealth gospel attaches itself to it like a tick sucking its blood. And some of health-wealth gospel sounds Christian, but it's really just a cheap knockoff. Here's the essence of the prosperity of the gospel. The prosperity gospel basically says, if you trust Jesus, that is, if you follow and obey God, then he will prosper you. That is, he will fill your life with material and physical blessings of health and wealth. So if you're not prospering, that means you have not trusted God enough. If you're not prospering, you need more faith. That is not the gospel of Jesus. The prosperity gospel makes a number of critical errors, more than I can mention here, that make them different from Jesus. But let me mention just a few errors that the prosperity gospel makes. One of the assumptions is there's an assumption in the prosperity context that if a person prospers, that must be a sign of God's blessing. That's the assumption. If someone prospers, that must be a sign of God's blessing. And that is tempting to believe. Many of us maybe think this, whether we realize it or not. You know, we, we look at perhaps even our own lives, and if things are going well, sometimes we think that, that, that God must be happy with us. And if things are not going well, it must be because God's upset or angry or mad for some reason at me. We may not always word it that way, but that's often sunken deep in us as some sort of belief. Sometimes we'll, we'll see uh, a person or a group with a bigger, bigger house, they've got a bigger crop, a bigger church even, and that must mean that God likes them more. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Now, to be clear, it is true that some, well, all in some ways, material wealth comes from God. Some material wealth is given as blessing from God. So uh, people like Abraham and Job and Solomon, these men were all very wealthy, even by today's standards. But it's also true that many of the wealthiest men in the Bible were also very wicked. Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, Herod, all the Herods. Even Zacchaeus, you know? Zacchaeus, the wee little man, the wee little man was he, you know that guy? Before he met Jesus, he was called rich, wealthy, materially wealthy, but not because he'd been blessed by God. He was rich because he was a liar, a thief, and a cheat. So if a person has physical or material success, that does not necessarily mean that they've gained favor with God. It could mean just that they've latched onto a gold chain and hung it around their neck, and that very gold chain will be the thing that drags them down into hell. That's one set of assumptions that the prosperity gospel gives that are wrong. Another assumption is the assumption that if we follow God, he will prosper us now. That's the assumption. If we follow God, he'll prosper us now. Now, it's true that Christians will experience some form of prosperity and abundance. You know the famous verse in Romans, 
Uh, God works all things for good for those who love him. It's a big verse, that's a big promise. God works all things together for good for those who love him. That's true. It's also true that, you know, eventually in the new heavens and new earth, when we are with Jesus, all things are restored, not just our souls, our bodies, everything, which means even everything materially, physically, there's no sickness, no, no poverty. There is, in one sense, a large abundance in the new heavens and the new earth. So it is sure, absolutely sure, that God will prosper us in some way. What's not sure is exactly when or how. There may be long seasons, perhaps even decades, even for believers where we are poor, where we are in pain, where we are persecuted. Scripture tells us even to expect those sorts of things sometimes. But the prosperity teacher tells us just the opposite. Some of the most famous prosperity teachers look like walking advertisements for the good life. You know? They're riding high in their jets. They've got their the $500 sneakers or their latest Armani suit. And, and, and they tell these amazing, gripping stories about miraculous healings to arenas full of people, people who are just hanging on their every words. And, and, and they'll say, all of this can be yours too if you just believe. All you have to do is follow Jesus and all of this is yours. That is backward. I wonder if they forget that their master's crowning work was death on a cross. You know, yes, Jesus healed people. Yes, Jesus made people well. Yes, Jesus cares about the body, our health, and even our wealth. But he also called his followers to deny ourselves and to take up our cross to follow him. So Jesus does prosper people in some sense, but that prosperity may only come on the other side of a cross. That's the second error. The third and final error that I'll mention here of the prosperity gospel, which is, in my assessment, the worst of them, is the prosperity gospel takes gifts and turns them into gods. I mean, no one says it that way. None of these teachers says, here, worship your gods. You know, no one wants to admit that, but that's really what's happening. The center of the prosperity gospel is idolatry. You know, uh, you know this already. Idols are, are not just little metal figurines that you set on your shelf and you bow down to. Idols are, can be any good thing that takes a place higher than God. So the prosperity gospel preaches health and wealth, and, and people come to this as faith in droves. They come to what they think is God, you know, desperate to find the sweet dew of the morning that will refresh their soul, which is uh, normal to expect, and, and that dew does come. But then once the sun rises and it gets hot and the water begins to dry up and they get thirsty again, those people who've come only to receive the dew are gone. 
they go off looking for whatever it is they're looking for. And that shows that what they really wanted, what they really put their faith in, is not God, but in the gift. What they really want is the prosperity of health and wealth, and that's, that's an idol that, then that they prefer over God. That is not good news. That is no gospel at all. The true gospel of Jesus is better. The true gospel of Jesus is when Jesus just says, Abide in me. He tells anyone who will hear and follow, Abide in me. I'm the vine, and you're the branches of that vine. That is, I will be your life. I will be the one who saves and sustains you whatever comes, come hell or high water. Which means, even if your spouse one day blindsides you with the dreaded words, I want a divorce, you're to abide in Jesus. Even if the medical debt or other forms of debt become so heavy that eventually you fall into bankruptcy, abide in Jesus. Even if at a regular checkup appointment, you sit there with the doctor and he, he reveals the surprise to you all that your child has stage four cancer. Abide in me. You're driving on the road, normal day, and the car coming at you swerves and you know, bam. And you wake up and you can't move your body from your neck down for the rest of life. You abide in Jesus. That's the gospel of Jesus. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but whether in plenty or in want, we can always, always abide in him. Jesus is the king and the victor over everything. That is, he's the victor over sin and all of sin's effects throughout the whole world. So, so even though we do experience sorrow and separation and pain and death, Jesus experienced all of that too. But he was able to move through all of that to beyond the cross where he lives again, lives and for everyone who is in, in Jesus, we then are revived to live again with him, that by his wounds we are healed. That's good news. So all of what we've said so far could be summed up like this. A prosperity gospel makes promises that it cannot keep and indulges sins that it cannot save. Prosperity gospel makes promises it cannot keep and indulges sins it cannot save. However, that doesn't mean 
that all forms of prosperity are bad. In fact, quite a lot of prosperity is good from God and meant to be enjoyed. You know, if we have the gospel of Jesus, where Jesus is our true treasure, that we will abide in him whatever comes, he also brings so much good. There are aspects of health and wealth at some point that even come with that. We see that here in Hosea. Some of the very first words of our text in verse 4 are a promise of healing. Did you notice that? Look at verse 4. The opening line is, I will heal their apostasy. Apostasy, that sounds like a big preachery word. So the healing is not just of the body, although God does that too. He cares about the body as well. But this is even better than that, more than that. I'm going to heal their apostasy. That is, one's apostasy is our, our tendency to turn away from God, our tendency to chase after other lovers, our tendency to, to make mud pies and just eat them up and think that we're satisfied by them. He says, I'm, I'm going to heal that. And more than just kind of our soul, he says later in these verses, verse 7, you'll return and dwell beneath my shadow, he says. That can sound sort of ominous. You'll dwell under my my shadow. This is not like a a UFO that's kind of hovering overhead, looming over us. The shadow is like a tree that gives shade. The shadow shadow is like a roof that gives shelter that the Lord is, is to be a refuge and a protection for us to revive not just our soul, but our body as well in, in some form of good health. So there's a health component, but there's also some sorts of, of wealth promises here. You notice he doesn't just give them the bare minimum to survive. Sometimes we think that from our daily bread. You know, he'll give us just a crust, you know, a little bit. But in this section, we hear words like, blossom. We hear words like flourish. We hear words like spread out. Which means it's not just about having stuff. It's about the Lord providing for us and providing more than enough of of good things that, that we can eat and share and enjoy Uh, One line at the end of of verse 8, the Lord calls himself an evergreen cypress, or at least compares himself to that. I am an evergreen cypress, he says. That that evergreen, there's not going to be a season where the Lord goes dry or dormant. I'm not going to need to take his fruit and can it which is good because I still don't know how to do that, but not need to pull the fruit of the Lord and can it so that I'll have it during the winter seasons. I'm going to be an evergreen cypress, meaning you can pluck the fruit of my vine all year round. You can pluck a fruit, pluck a fruit, and pluck a fruit, and there will always be another fruit at hand when you need it. I'm an evergreen cypress. There are components here of health and wealth. And the Lord's provision for us is far better than any provision we can get from anywhere else, from these sort of idols that prosperity gospel promises. You know, the prosperity promises, they cannot really answer you. 
They cannot really look after you. An earlier prophet, uh, uh, Jeremiah, compares idols to scarecrows, which I guess it's Halloween, so it's an appropriate day to talk about this. Uh, he compares the idols of the people to scarecrows in a cucumber field, specifically it says, which is, I'm always curious why that is. But these idols, you know, just hang up there, you know? They can't walk, they can't talk, they can't really do anything by themselves, they just are there. So the, these scarecrow idols, we are the ones that have to m make them and maintain them and dust them and move them around so that they can do their business. You know, that's the same with any idol, not just scarecrows. Money is that way, power is that way, medicine even is that way. They may be good things. Money has good use, so does power, so does medicine. But if, the, if we make them gods, they will weigh down our back because we have to carry them around to make them do their work. The Lord's better than that. Only the Lord can answer you. Only the Lord can look after you if you abide in him. Now, in these closing words of Hosea, what we hear is, is Israel receiving this sort of full cup this overflowing, abundant cup that is, that is undeserved, that the Lord is generous to revive Israel with good. But the big question that we said at the beginning that we talk about is, why? Why would the Lord do this? Why does this revival occur? Let me sidestep to try to answer this from the edge, and I'll come back around. So many generations prior to Hosea, the people sat under a different prophet whose name was, see if you recognize this guy, Moses. Sound familiar? We know Moses, yes? So, so after the Lord had, had done his most famous uh, work, for Moses' most famous work, in bringing the people out of slavery of Egypt, and now the, uh, they're, they're in the desert, they're on their way to the promised land, and the Lord tells Moses to tell the people something. He says, Tell them to build me a sanctuary so that I can dwell in their midst. This sanctuary is, is what they called the tabernacle. It was this portable set of structures uh, that they would set up and bring along with them. So in the very inner spot of the tabernacle is what they called the Holy of Holies. And in this was, was this very uh, sacred box made of gold, called the Ark of the Covenant, or the Ark of the Testimony. And ab above that box is where the Lord says that I will meet with you and speak, speak to you. And, and they could only go into this Holy of Holies to meet with the Lord at this Ark of the Covenant uh, only once a year. Only the high priest could go in once a year, but that God would always be with them and dwell with them in this space. So then just outside of the Holy of Holies, there's another small room where they had, you know, an altar of incense and lamps and a table of bread. There was all this symbolic nature about how the Lord would be their life and their, their provision and receive their prayers. And then outside of that was this big courtyard that's surrounded by curtains all, all around so they would know clearly where the space was. And in the courtyard was a basin for washing and altars, very specific about all these things. And in this courtyard, the people were commanded by God 
at various times to bring things. They were commanded to bring tithes, which means a tenth uh, of their herds and, and their uh, flocks and their harvests. So commanded to bring tithe, commanded to bring offering, and commanded to bring sacrifices so that the Lord would atone for their sin and cover over their sin. So all of this was the obligation of the people. It was a requirement commanded by God as he dwells with them. And if we were to look in the book of, of Exodus about this whole thing, the instructions about how to build this structure, this, these rooms in the, of this tabernacle, it's very intricate, the details about it, and very expensive. There are pages and pages about how to build it, uh, but all the, all the materials, there's, there's gold, silver, bronze, lots of it that they need. They need lots of yarn uh, dyed in, in blue and scarlet and purple. They need animal skins, which had been tanned in a particular way. They need uh, specific woods, uh, acacia wood. They need uh, oils and perfumes and spices and precious stones and jewels. All of this stuff needs to be put together with lots of craftsmanship. But first, they have to collect it all. They have to collect the material to, to build the tabernacle, the dwelling of God. So how are they going to collect all of these things? You've got people wandering in a desert. They don't just tax everybody. You know, Moses doesn't say, hey, God told me we're going to build this thing, so I'm going to count up your heads. One, two, three, four, five, six. We're going to divide up the price and everybody pay your fair share. That's not what happens. This is how they collect the material for the tabernacle. It's toward the end of Exodus chapter 35. Here are the words. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, they brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. Did you catch all that? They need all this material, and they just, everyone whose heart moved them brought a free will offering of these material to God. In other words, if you can't contribute, or even if you don't want to contribute to the tabernacle building, that's okay. No guilt, no pressure, no obligation. But the ones who uh, did give, the ones whose heart moved, that is, were willing, brought these offerings according to their free will, it says. That is, they were not required to do that. It was entirely voluntary. This is why this matters. This same word for their free will offering that was given to the tabernacle is the same word that we hear used at the end of Hosea. It's an important word in relation to the Lord, and it helps us answer our question about why this revival occurs. The revival occurs in connection to something that is free will, but it's not the free will of the people it's the free will of the Lord in a particular way. You can see it in Hosea at the beginning of our verses, verse 4. The Lord says, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. 
I will love them freely. So the revival of the people, that the people are made alive again, this comes from the love of God, which is free. No obligation, no coercion, no exchange of goods. The Lord gives this love completely voluntary. That is, he has just chosen to love. Let me tell you then, last thing, why this is a good thing, a really great thing. So some Christians, some Christians like to make a lot of free will in humans. You know, so, so some people talk about how everything ultimately comes down to our choice. So in relation to God, it's whether or not I follow God or not, whether I, whether I choose to have faith in God or not, whether I choose to love God or not. That sounds great, but the problem is Israel's free will, if we can call it that, only seems to get her in trouble. I mean, if, if we were to look back, comb back through the whole book of Hosea and see what Israel chooses to love, here's a full list of everything the book says that she loves. She loves her lovers that were not her husband. She loves her raisin cakes, her shame, her wages, her idols, and oppression. That's it. That's the whole list of things that Israel loves. Do you you notice something missing there? Not once. In the entire book about a relationship of a husband and wife is a picture of Israel and the Lord. Not once does it say that she loves God. Our own free will if we can even call it that, our own free will is not a good source of hope. But the great news is that our revival, a real flourishing and new abundant life does not rest on our will to love, but on God's will to love. He just says, I will love them freely. This is something that he has just chosen to give us by something we can only call grace. Would you pray with me? Lord, help us to hear and receive these things, to be humbled and hopeful in them. We know that we rest everything upon you, that our our own loves are stained and wayward, but your love is, is pure, and you have freely set your love upon us. Thank you for being a God who heals us. We turn to you for all things, And you're a good place to turn. 
So we give you praise in, in Jesus' name. Amen.